Can you hear me? Uh, okay, very good. Okay. This is Dave, testing out the audio. Great. Are we good to go, Greg? All right, let's begin. Well, good morning. Thank you so much for being here for Sunday School. Looking forward to continuing our study of the Bible and going through Genesis with you. There's a quick update on the fire situation. If you saw my email or if you've seen the news, you know that the Saddle Ridge fire has been burning uh, north of Los Angeles, getting a little bit closer to where Emma and I live. We haven't been in any danger, but we did lose our Internet, which I don't know. That is a pretty big, <laughs> pretty big deal in the modern age. And it did uh, threaten the ability to do Sunday school. But Internet came on again last night, so I'm able to continue to do Sunday school with you. So I praise the Lord for that. It seems like they are working to contain the fire. Most recent thing I saw said 33% contained. Um, so, but we thank for the Lord's providence in that. And thank you for your prayers if, if you were thinking or praying about that. But we're continuing with the life of Joseph today. Last week we saw how God sovereignly arranged for Joseph to be taken down to Egypt. And today we're going to look at how God blesses Joseph in Egypt. You see, God does not abandon Joseph. And Joseph, for his part, he clings to God in faith. But not everything goes well for Joseph. He will be abundantly blessed, but he will also suffer pretty severely. By the end of our text today that we're going to look at, we're going to see that Joseph is in prison and he has no prospect of relief. And he has no idea why any of this is happening to him. In this account, and through all these things, we're going to see another powerful testimony as to why we can and should always trust God, trust our good, loving, and sovereign God. Now let's pray, ask the Lord's blessing on this time, and we'll investigate that further. Our great God, you are the King. You are our Heavenly Father, and you do all things well. And yet, God, we many times cannot see or understand exactly what you're doing. God, I pray that in those times we would trust you. Even in those times you bless us, God, and we're so thankful. But in those times of uncertainty and suffering, I pray, God, that your people would learn from the life of Joseph to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, some of you might remember that I'm one of the classes I'm taking right now is Exposition of Job and Ecclesiastes. In that class, we've been focusing on Ecclesiastes uh, to start. And one of the main themes of Ecclesiastes is the concept of Havel. Havel is a Hebrew word. You could also pronounce it Hebel with a B. But it's the word behind that famous word in Ecclesiastes, vanity. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, right? Havel, Havelim. It's the same word. Havel, though translated vanity, and it does have a, a sense of vanity, more literally means air, breath, or vapor. And this is a very appropriate term for describing life. Solomon says, life is Havel. And what does he mean by that? A couple of different nuances. Life is like a vapor. It passes quickly. And the things of life, the work, the pleasures, they also don't give lasting satisfaction on their own. But also, like a vapor, life is frequently mysterious, enigmatic, you can't fully explain it or understand it. And this is, I think, relevant for our text today because when it comes to life, we do try to make sense of it, especially when we suffer. When some very difficult thing happens to us or some turn in our life, we say, why is this happening to me? What is God doing? What did I do to deserve this? And so because we crave to understand, to give some sort of sense to what's going on around us, we many times fall back on some version of the prosperity gospel. We say to ourselves, well, the reason I'm experiencing this hardship must be because God is displeased with me. It must be because I'm in sin. 
After all, God promises in the scriptures to be to bless those who are faithful to him. And if I'm not experiencing that blessing, if I'm not feeling that blessing, then I must have done something to offend God. By the way, when we think this way, or, or rather, let me say it this way, this line of thinking, does it remind you of anyone in the Bible trying to explain suffering? The reason this bad thing has happened to you is because you've sinned. Yeah, Job's friends, right? That's exactly what they said. What's so tricky about that perspective is that there's some truth to it. If you're aware of the scriptures at all, especially the Old Testament, you will see that God does bless those who are faithful to him. He does promise that. And he says that he will curse or he will chasten, he will discipline those who sin against him, those who oppose him. Sin and righteousness do have consequences. But the problem is that life is more complicated than that. And this is Solomon's observation in Ecclesiastes. Sometimes it looks like God is giving undeserved but abundant blessing on those who persist in sin. The wicked prosper. And sometimes God brings devastating hardship on those who are the most faithful to him. And so we're, we, got, we ask ourselves, why? God, why do you do this? We want to understand. My brothers and sisters, we need to face the fact that sometimes we simply cannot know, specifically, why God brings us into suffering. We want an explanation. We want order, but we won't see it. It is good for us to examine whether we are in a pattern of unrepentant sin. But walking faithfully with God is no guarantee that you will avoid suffering. In fact, many sections of Scripture affirm that suffering will follow those who follow God. Paul writes to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. And Jesus says to his disciples, in this world, you will have what? Tribulation. And using a metaphor, Jesus also tells his disciples, if you're a true branch of the vine and I'm the vine, what will the Father do to you? He will prune you. He will cut off part of you. If you're a Christian, that means that you will suffer. And why? God never tells us specifically in each situation. It's not like when you enter some mode of suffering, he says, by the way, here's exactly what I'm doing here. He doesn't do that, and he doesn't have to. He's God. Now, he does tell us generally in the scriptures why he uses suffering, why he ordains suffering for us, even as his people. He says, I'm doing this so that you will bear more fruit. I'm doing this to make you more like Christ. I'm doing this to display your true faith more brightly to the world. I'm doing this to bring about some glorious purpose in the future, which you do not see yet. Ultimately, I'm doing this for a good reason, and you need to trust me. Now, the question is for you. Do you trust God even when you're suffering? doesn't make sense, when it's inexplicable, when you can't see the specific reason for it? Do you fall back on these promises of God where he says, generally, this is what I do in these kinds of situations in your life? The passage we're going to look at today will show us more of why we can and must do this. Please open your Bibles to Genesis 39. Genesis 39 is on page 42, if you're using the Pew Bible. In Genesis 39, we pick up again with the life of Joseph. We last left him at the end of Genesis 37, being enslaved and taken off to Egypt. And in Genesis 38, there's an interlude illuminating the immoral life of Joseph's brother, Judah. We won't go through all the details of that, but you remember Judah was the ringleader in selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites. And in Genesis 38, we hear about some pretty pretty uh, heinous immorality that he gets involved in. But then the narrative switches back to Joseph. Now, we're going to pick up that account in Genesis 39. Our first section is going to be to go through verses 1 to 20. And then later in the class, we'll look at a second section that goes into Genesis 40 down to the end of that chapter. Now, let's read 
and then we'll observe verses 1 to 20. Here's what it says. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down there. The Lord, that is Yahweh, was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that Yahweh was with him, and how Yahweh caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus, Yahweh's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything and he owned in Joseph's charge. And with them there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household were there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. She saw that he had left his garment in her hand and he had fled outside. She called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave, whom you brought to us, came in to me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. And when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. All right, let's start with basic observations of this passage. Notice that Joseph is sold to Potiphar, a high-ranking official, captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. Then look what we immediately see in verse 2. It says, Yahweh was with Joseph. Yahweh was with Joseph, even in slavery, even in Egypt, even far removed from Jacob and the rest of the family. God is with Joseph. And what does God cause to happen for Joseph? Well, God essentially gives Joseph a Midas touch. Whatever he does, wherever he turns, whatever goes into his hand is successful and prospers. Verse 3, Potiphar notices this. God is granting Joseph success. And so this leads to Joseph's very rapid rise. Potiphar starts giving more and more responsibilities to Joseph. From household slave, he becomes Potiphar's personal attendant in verse 4. Then he becomes overseer of all Potiphar's house and all that Potiphar owns. Verse 6 says that Potiphar did not concern himself with anything except his own food, the most personal of concerns. He left everything else to Joseph. I mean, talk about trust. Talk about authority. It's true, he's still enslaved, but wow, life has really turned around for Joseph. He's become a man of great authority, great honor even, inside Potiphar's household, and probably lives somewhat comfortably. And what was the result for Potiphar? It says God blessed everything at Potiphar's household because Joseph was managing it. By the way, does this remind you of anything we've seen lately? Where else did we see this recently? Yeah, Jacob, right? With whose household? 
with Laban's household. That's why Laban didn't want J uh, Jacob to leave, right? He keeps coming up with schemes to make Jacob work for him more because he sees, hey, I'm blessed whenever you work for me. Same thing happening with Joseph here. But there is one source of blessing on Joseph that turns out to be his downfall on the household. Because the second part of verse 6 says that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. This word handsome could also be translated beautiful. Who else did we see recently who was described this same way? Beautiful in form and appearance. Say that again. Similar to Moses, not the exact same phrasing, but they do. His parents do notice that he is beautiful, that he's a lovely child. That's true. But actually, this exact same phrase was used of someone else. Actually, Rachel, Jacob's wife and Joseph's mother. They're the only two people in the Old Testament given this exact description, beautiful in form and appearance. This is true of Joseph. And verse 7 says, Potiphar's wife notices how handsome Joseph is and looks with desire at him. And she even propositions Joseph saying, lie with me. She wants Joseph to commit adultery with her. Now, Joseph, for his part, he refuses her advance. And notice what he says in explanation. He notes how much trust and authority the master has given to him. And then verse 10, he asks, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? In other words, not only would this be a terrible violation of the master's trust and a gross step of ingratitude based on what all the things the master has done for Joseph, but it would be sin against God. Now, that's some definite faith. That's a definite display of devotion of Joseph to God. He's a very conscientious man. And this is in strong contrast to Judah in the previous chapter. Though Joseph says this to Potiphar's wife, she doesn't give up. She tries to speak to Joseph day after day. And what's Joseph's response to this ongoing sexual harassment? He says he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Which is kind of interesting. You may notice that phrasing is a little unique. It seems that Potiphar's wife lightened her request to Joseph just to have Joseph lie next to her or spend time with her. But Joseph's not going to have any of it. He's committed to staying away from her as much as he can in any sort of compromising situation. But then, verse 11, there's one day where there's no one in the house except her and Joseph. And verse 12 says, she caught him by his garment and then told him to lie with her. Now, this word garment probably refers to Joseph's tunic, which is essentially a, a long shirt. Men at this time, they often wore basically two pieces of clothing. They wore undergarments, I think something like a pair of shorts, and they wore a tunic, this long shirt that, that went down past your waist. She grabs him by the tunic. What does Joseph do? It says he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. He didn't just leave. He fled. Very specific description. He slipped out of his shirt, his tunic, and he ran. Apparently, he didn't say anything to her. Or if he did, it's not recorded. He just left his tunic behind and went outside, meaning that he's actually half naked at this point. He's probably just in his undergarments. And that's going to raise some questions, won't it? Hey, Joseph, what are you doing without your tunic? And uh, why does the master's wife have it? The master's wife decides that she's going to make Joseph the one who looks bad in this situation. After all, she does have some pretty incriminating evidence against Joseph. Look, I've got his clothes. So she calls the other household slaves and accuses Joseph of trying to rape her. Do you notice the way she says this to the other household members? She says... He has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. Now, who is the he of this statement? Not Joseph, but Potiphar, her husband. He's the one who obtained Joseph as a slave. And so she says, he brought in this Hebrew to make sport of us. 
basically she's saying this is partially Potiphar's fault. And notice her use of the term Hebrew. I mean, why bring up Joseph's ethnic origin all of a sudden? He is a slave, but he's also, if he's not an Egyptian, he's a Hebrew. That means he's a foreigner. So when she says, look, this, this foreigner did this to me, she's drawing on some xenophobia, right? And this is so common even today, right? It's the people outside the country who are coming in and ruining everything. She's drawing on people's latent suspicion of those who are not native and say, look what this foreigner did to me. Now, she's being really subtle but cunning with language. She's making herself seem like the victim when she was really the one trying to victimize Joseph. And in verse 17, we see that she gives a similar story and similar blame to her husband whenever he comes home. Apparently he had been away, maybe with Pharaoh, maybe out of town, but he eventually comes home. He hears this story. And how does he react? It says, verse 19, his anger burned. Now it doesn't say against whom his anger burned. It doesn't say his anger burned against Joseph. He was angry and he does act against Joseph. Verse 20 says that Potiphar put Joseph into prison. Not just any prison. Notice it says the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now, there's one strange aspect to this choice of putting Joseph into prison. Rape, or attempted rape even, of another's wife was a capital crime in Egypt. That would net you the death penalty. And it would actually do the same in Moses' law when God gave it to Israel. If you attempt to rape another person's wife, you'll be put to death. But Joseph is not executed here. Instead, he's put in prison. Why? With these observations, let's now consider a few interpretation questions. First, why does God bless Joseph in Potiphar's house? clearly blesses him, why does God do so? Think about what we've seen so far in Genesis. We've been seeing blessing on different people and what's been the connection between their receiving that blessing. Most recently, it's all been about the promises and covenant to Abraham. Is it not? When God first called Abraham out of Ur, he promised that he would bless him and that he would bless his descendants and that he would bless those who blessed him. We saw that happen in Abraham's life. We saw that happen in Isaac's life. We saw that happen in Jacob's life. And now we're seeing it happen in Joseph's life. Of course, there are other parts of this where God is just showing grace. God is uh, blessing those who are obedient to him, who have faith in him. This is involved with God's purposes for the future, but all of this centers around the Abrahamic covenant, those special promises of blessing that God gave to Abraham and his seed. We're seeing that manifest in Joseph's life. Now, a question in a different venue. How does Joseph's response to his master's wife's lustful advances illustrate righteous principles elsewhere in the Bible? He reacts to this attempted seduction very righteously. But where do we see the principles that he's basically following elsewhere in the Bible? Yeah, Roy.
Right. Yes, that's a great observation. Great observation, Roy. He doesn't have the scriptures, but there is enough revelation in the world passed down via word of mouth and other ways that God communicated to people in those days that Joseph knows what is the righteous way, what is the wise way. And it does go back to that basic principle expressed when God created man and woman, which is a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, singular, and the two shall become one flesh. That is not to be separated. That is not to be violated. And it is a principle, even without God specially communicating that to you, it is a principle evident in creation. It's something that people know deep down. And that's part of their suppressing the truth and unrighteousness that we have the adultery and the violation of God's marriage design today. It's not that people don't know, really. It's just that they suppress the truth that they know. But still, the question I'm asking is, are there specific sections of scripture that go along with exactly what Joseph does here? And Duane, I see your hand. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And what does that say? That's right. First Corinthians 618, flee immorality. Or we can actually point to a number of other scriptures. Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7, they all talk about bewaring the adulteress. And Proverbs 5, 8 says, keep your way far from her. Do not even go near the door of her house. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 27 to 30, Remember that if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. And then right next to that, he says, whatever you need to cut off so that you don't go into sin, do that. If you have to gouge out your right eye, cut off your right arm, even if it's costly to you, it's better that you lose that than you stumble into sexual sin. Hebrews 13:4 says marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, it says, God will judge. And we could point to other scriptures. Now, I do want to point out to you that this section here, Genesis 39, it is not meant as, or at least not primarily meant, as an instruction booklet for dealing with sexual temptation. There's a greater purpose in all of this. But Joseph's response is a great illustration of the righteous and wise way before God declared in other parts of the scripture. Now, again, Joseph didn't have these scriptures, but he knew enough. And he was someone clearly filled with the wisdom of God. He is a very wise man, and that is illustrated in how he walks before God. Joseph realized you don't mess around with a moral temptation. Now, you've heard the phrase, shoot first and ask questions later. But when it comes to sexual sin and temptation, you need to flee first. And ask questions later. When your conscience first begins to say, I don't think I should be here. Or when you notice, huh, I think this, this situation is becoming potentially dangerous. You need to get out. You need to flee. Because otherwise, if you stay under immoral temptation, your judgment will soon be clouded. God made the sexual passions very powerful as part of his good design for marriage. But those passions will be used against you if you linger in a, a situation of immoral temptation. He will likely be entrapped. Now, if you naively, foolishly want to push the limits, if you want to play with fire, you will get burned. You will fall into sexual sin. And by doing so, you will hurt yourself. You will hurt others. You will dishonor marriage. And you will sin against God, just like Joseph says. Therefore, there is something to learn from the wise and faithful response of Joseph in this situation. Now, of course, I should also mention that there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness of even the worst sexual sin in Christ. But the life consequences of that sin are very painful, very damaging. And so God urges you in his word not to proceed down that foolish path. And we're also warned in the scriptures that if you do not turn from sexual sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Fornicators and adulterers will be judged, God says. They will not see the new heavens and the new earth. Now, one other question I want to ask here. Why wasn't Joseph 
executed for this supposed crime he committed. Why didn't that happen? Now, there could be a few reasons. It may be that the husband did not totally believe his wife's story. I mean, she, she blames him after all, and that would be annoying. Maybe the husband wanted to do more investigation. We don't hear any defense from Joseph in his text, in this text, but surely he protested his innocence. Maybe the husband did take that into consideration. Or maybe he did believe his wife. After all, she did have Joseph's garment. But Joseph had been faithful for years, and so out of some sympathy for Joseph, he lessens the penalty. Or maybe because it was only attempted and not actually fulfilled, maybe he thought, all right, I don't have to put Joseph to death. But whatever the master was thinking, we know the ultimate reason that Joseph was not killed, and that is because of God, God's sovereignty, God's kindness in Joseph in this situation. God has a very important purpose for Joseph's life. It cannot end in execution, at least not right now. Joseph needs to go to prison. So God made sure to arrange things so that that, that was the result. And he didn't just go to any prison. He went to a very particular prison. Because it's in this prison that he's going to meet two important people. And we're going to actually look at that now. Let's look at our next passage, Genesis 39, going from verse 21 to verse 23 of chapter 40. We read what happens next to Joseph. It says, But Yahweh was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. And gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. Chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because Yahweh was with him, and whatever he did, Yahweh made to prosper. Then it came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, in the jail, the same place where Joseph was in prison. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them. And they were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream and each dream with his own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? And they said to him, We've had a dream, and there's no one to interpret it. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me. And on the vine were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you. And please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. And even here I've done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream. And behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket, there was some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. And the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Then Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. Three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat your flesh off you. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, 
but forgot him. All right, well, let's observe this passage. Notice this section begins with the same phrase that we saw in the beginning of the last one. Yahweh was with Joseph. Even here, God has not abandoned Joseph, and God is still blessing Joseph, even through the harrowing experience of false accusation and imprisonment. God does bless his people. In fact, what do you notice happens in the jail that mirrors what we saw previously? Joseph finds favor in the sight of the overseer, and he's eventually put in charge of everything. And God blesses it. Which tells you, man, Joseph must have had some serious gifts of administration. This guy was a hard worker. He was smart. He was trustworthy. What were those the real reasons for his success? Again, look at verse 21. It says not only that Yahweh was with Joseph, but it says God also extended kindness to Joseph. And behind this Hebrew word for kindness is that special word that I mentioned to you before, chesed. It's that word normally translated loving kindness in the New American Standard, but it has the idea of loyal love or covenant kindness. God is continually pouring out on Joseph, even through these difficulties, that covenant love, chesed. And so how is it that God, or rather that Joseph, obtained favor with the chief jailer? It was God's grace. God gave it to Joseph. God gave Joseph that favor. Joseph was faithful, it's true. That's not ultimately why Joseph was successful. He was successful because God made Joseph successful. And that's true for our successes too, by the way. If you experience success in your life, it's because God granted it to you, not because you're so smart or even because you're so faithful. God grants it. Notice though, as he's experiencing this blessing, even in this difficult situation, Joseph meets two important people, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and Pharaoh's chief baker. And these are important positions before Pharaoh, not only because food and drink are personally interesting to Pharaoh, he wants to eat and drink good food and drink, but they are also potential sources of poison. So Pharaoh needs men he can trust in these two important positions. But both of these men did something to offend their Pharaoh, and that's why they're put into the prison where Joseph is. Now, these are VIP prisoners. And verse 4 says the captain of the bodyguard, who is probably still Potiphar, he puts Joseph in charge of these two men. After some time, it turns out that both of these men have a dream the same night, and verse 6 says, in the morning, when Joseph comes to serve these two prisoners, they're looking dejected. They tell him why, when he asks, it's because they don't have anyone to interpret their dreams. Now, we need to remember, and I've said something about this before, in ancient times, dreams were treated as a very big deal, especially in Egypt, especially in Babylon. The world of dreams was thought of as like a halfway realm between the world of men and the world of the gods. Many Egyptians considered dreams to be omens or messages about the future. There was a whole science science of dream interpretation in Egypt. There were handbooks published about how to interpret your dreams, and there were specialists who could tell you about your dreams. These court officials, the baker and the cupbearer, they're probably used to having access to dream interpretation resources, but stuck in prison, they don't have that anymore. But they have these significant dreams. They want to see how they should be interpreted, and they just don't know. But so does Joseph's response to them when they tell him this. He says, do not interpretations belong to God? Right away, Joseph asserts, if there's a divine message in a dream, God has to be the one to interpret it for you. So there's a quick repudiation of the whole dream science of the Egyptian cult. But then Joseph says, tell it to me. Tell it to me, please. So then Joseph hears and interprets the dream of the cupbearer. And he tells the cupbearer, after three days, you'll be restored to your position before Pharaoh. But then notice verses 14 and 15. Joseph makes request. He says, remember me when things go well with you. Speak to Pharaoh on my behalf. Get me out of this dungeon because I have done nothing to be placed here. I'm innocent. Hearing this favorable interpretation, the, ba the baker pipes up. And he tells Joseph about his dream. And when Joseph interprets it, Notice there's a startling play on words. The cupbearer's head would be lifted up in the sense of receiving Pharaoh's favor again. But the baker's head would be lifted up 
in the sense that it would be removed from him. His head would be removed and his body would be hanged, that is, impaled, and the birds would eat the flesh off of him. Uh, wow, that would get a very interesting response from the baker. But is Joseph right in these interpretations? He is. After three days, it's Pharaoh's birthday. It's part of the celebration. He restores the cupbearer and executes the baker. But then notice verse 23. It says, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Oh, come on, man. You don't remember that the Hebrew slave in the prison who was so good to you, who attended you, who interpreted your dream for you and comforted you? You don't remember him? Apparently not. Therefore, Joseph continues to languish in prison for a crime he never committed, actually suffering because someone else sinned against Joseph. Is Joseph really experiencing the blessing of God? Let's interpret again. How is it that Joseph accurately interprets the dreams presented to him? He says dreams belong to God, but then he says, why don't you tell me your dream? What's the connection? That's right. He is interpreting these dreams because God is giving him the ability. Now, how Joseph knew he had this ability is never explained. He had dreams before, but somehow Joseph knew. But all the while, he's giving credit to God. God is the one who will grant the interpretation. I'm merely the messenger of it. And this ability will prove key to what happens with Joseph before Pharaoh, and we'll look at that next time. But he's able to interpret the dreams here because God gives him that ability. Why is it, though, that the cupbearer forgets Joseph? And come on, cupbearer, wasn't this a significant thing? We don't know the old, or we don't know the specific reason. Maybe the joy of getting out of that prison. He just made him want to forget that whole experience. Maybe he figured, ah, eh, you know, just some Hebrew slave. He's not important. I don't, I don't need to worry about him. And it's true also that people just have an amazing ability to forget kindnesses, to show ingratitude. So maybe that's happening here. He just decides not to really care about Joseph, leaves Joseph in suffering. But again, we know the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason that Joseph is forgotten in prison is because that's what God ordained. That's what God sovereignly chose. This cupbearer's mind is in the Lord's hands. God could have caused him to remember, but he didn't, didn't do that. God has sovereignly determined that Joseph will be in prison a longer amount of time. Actually, we'll see next time that it's two more years after he has this interaction with the cupbearer. And in total, of being in Potiphar's household and then being in the prison, it will be 13 years for Joseph. That's a fair amount of time. And the question that goes along with it is, of course, why? Why, God? Why are you treating your servant so badly? He's doing everything right. He's being a good slave. He's remaining sexually pure. He's even serving diligently while in prison. So, God, why are you leaving him there in suffering? Well, first we have to say, the text has already told us that God is with Joseph, even in these situations. So God has not left Joseph alone. And the, all the while, in this period of time in Egypt, he has been experiencing good from God. Yes, he was enslaved in Potiphar's household, but he was blessed there. And yes, he's in this prison situation, but he was blessed there too. So God has not simply left his servant to suffer. But as to the trouble, the ongoing trouble Joseph experiences... God does not explain himself to Joseph, and he doesn't have to. So what's keeping Joseph going? On what is he able to cling? Only two things. Who God is and what God promised. He knows who God is. He is the sovereign God. He is a gracious God. And he remembers the promise. Somewhat enigmatically declared, but Joseph did have those dreams. God declared to Joseph and to Joseph's family that one day God's or Jacob's family would bow down to Joseph. Certainly what's happening right now to Joseph does not look anything close to that. 
But God declared it would happen. And that's a promise that Joseph could cling to. And because we don't, or because we know, Joseph didn't, we know the rest of the story. We actually know exactly why these things are happening to Joseph. It had to happen this way because, well, let me, let's go through it step by step. Joseph was purchased by Potiphar, this very specific official, so that when falsely accused by that man's wife, Joseph would end up in the prison that royal officials go to. That way, Joseph would meet the cupbearer and interpret the cupbearer's dream. And why was Joseph forgotten in the prison? It was very important. It's so that Joseph would only be remembered when Pharaoh was in crisis, when Pharaoh has some dreams that he wants interpreted and that no one else is able to interpret. Therefore, when Joseph is released at that time, he doesn't simply get out of prison, but he becomes the most exalted man in Egypt outside of Pharaoh. He becomes second in command of Pharaoh, which enables him not only to receive honor and authority and blessing, but it also allows him to save Egypt and the surrounding area from a terrible famine that's going to come in the future. And that's going to have an impact on Joseph's family. Jacob and his sons, they will need food too to survive the famine, and they will find it in Egypt because of Joseph being exalted. Now again, Joseph doesn't know this, but what he's experiencing, it will actually lead to a glorious end. The same is true for us. Not in the exact same way as Joseph, but in a similar way. Now, someone might ask, uh, couldn't God have accomplished this in some way that was a little easier on Joseph? And in a way, yes, he could have. But God didn't do that. And we know that God does whatever he pleases, and the thing that pleases God most is to glorify himself. God determined in his perfect wisdom that this was the best way. This would most glorify God. This would most sharpen and shape Joseph's faith. This would best instruct the later generations of Israel, and this would best instruct us, even today. So then, brothers and sisters, I know that you are going through or will go through suffering in your life that does not make sense. You will do what it's right, you will do what's right, and you will suffer for it. You will hold true to God and then encounter deep tragedies. You will be sinned against, and the one who sins against you gets away with it while you experience injustice. Many of these painful difficulties will be long, even lasting years. And you will ask, why, God? What did I do to deserve this trouble? The unspoken answer to you will be, this is not punishment for sin. This is my working out of a glorious purpose that you do not yet see. Remember how the disciples encounter a blind man in John 9, and they ask Jesus, Who is it that sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? What did Jesus say in response? He says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Do you see that that is the answer for you when you experience inexplicable suffering? God is yet at work, and he's doing something good for you, for others, and for his own glory. He is yet with you, as he is with Joseph here. His blessings, yes, even every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 1, they are yet on you, not to remove you from suffering, but to sustain you through suffering. This is why Christians can do what Paul says in Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks for all things at all times. Even through injustice, suffering, persecution, God is with you if you know Christ. His blessings do not stop. He is working out a kind purpose in his covenant love. So brothers and sisters, you need to own this truth. You need to believe it. You need to drive it deep down into your heart. This will give you strength in trials and even cause you to give thanks 
through suffering. God loves you, but his ways are higher than yours. Don't demand a specific answer from God about the circumstances you see in life. You're not capable of seeing all that God sees. Do as Joseph did. Hold fast to God's character. Hold fast to God's promises. It will all work out in the end. And that end, though, may be after you've passed from this world. And that will be one of the amazing things when we go to be with God. We will see, oh, you know, this thing I suffered, it had an important impact years down the road, even in a generation past when I lived. Joseph was treated unjustly, but he still entrusted himself to his faithful God. And who did this to an even greater extent? Our Lord Jesus. The Son of God suffered the greatest injustice by being rejected by men, by his people, and by being put on the cross. But what did he do? He entrusted himself to his Father because he knew that what he was experiencing was accomplishing a great purpose. So will it will so it will be with you as Jesus's followers. Learn from Jesus's example, not just Joseph's. Hebrews 12:3. Hebrews 12:3. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the main truth I think you need to see today. You can trust God even when you suffer injustice. And even when you can't see what God is doing. Again, this is all part of that same message that Genesis keeps bringing us to. You need to see it. Now, a few more questions of application as we uh, wind up our time today. First, and these are for you to think about, explore in your mind. Are you grateful for all the ways that God blesses you, even through difficulty? If you are God's child, you are blessed, not just because you live in this world, which has common grace in it, but you experience every spiritual blessing that is in the heavenly places. Are you grateful for that? Do you see those blessings? Do you thank God for those blessings, even when you experience hardship? God does bless his people, just as he did with Joseph. How have you been treated unjustly in your life? You have been, I'm sure. Has these things, have these things made you bitter against God and against those who committed those sins against you? Do you realize first and foremost that you do not deserve any good from God? You have to have that attitude that Jacob had, which we saw a few weeks ago where Jacob told God, I am not worthy of all the loving kindness and faithfulness that you have shown. Can your heart truly testify of that? Because you know what a sinner you have been against God. Do you realize you're unworthy of any good from God? Do you secondly realize that the sin and injustice that you experienced was under God's control? He could have prevented it, but he didn't. And then thirdly, they realize then that God is working out something good for you, for others, and for itself in the very injustices that you suffered. In light of all that, how do you need to humble yourself before God and actually glorify him for what he is doing? One other set of questions. Has your sin brought suffering into your life? Do you realize that God is gracious and accomplishing a redemptive purpose even in allowing your sin and its consequences? He's accomplishing good even in that. One of those chief goods is to draw you to repentance. Have you learned from your dealings with sin? Seeing now instead how to live wisely and avoid all the ways that sin damages and destroys. Of course, we're never going to be perfect in this, but we are to be growing, growing in holiness, growing in wisdom. And those two things 
they go exactly together. Are you learning from your dealings with sin? Trust God. And do you love God for his kindness to you in spite of your sin? Do you love God, especially for what he did for you in Christ, in Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension? How he loved you while you were yet a sinner, and how he loves you even when you still fall into sin. Remember, Romans says, it is the kindness of God that ought to lead you to repentance. Questions or comments about today's lesson? I hope this lesson has been precious to you. There are some very sweet truths here. Oh, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, that's a great point, Steve, and it's worth reiterating. But there are so many kindnesses and blessings undeserved that we experience in life. Just the ability to experience any good or to be alive. And as Christians, we should be most aware of that. The people of the world, just as you were saying, Steve, they're they're not aware of that. Or rather, they suppress that because they, they still have an exalted view of themselves. But we're not to be like that. And I think that's part of the reason why we're able to give thanks in every situation, as the New Testament says, as the whole Bible says, is because all around us, we're just constantly seeing God's goodness. And even when our circumstances are very difficult, there's still something that's very kind that God is doing in his in what he's working out in that situation or the inheritance that we have with God. So Christians ought to be marked by thankfulness, not this entitlement attitude. Oh, you know. It's just food or it's just another day. No, these are gracious gifts of God. So that's a great point, Steve. It's great. If you have other questions or comments on today's lesson, definitely email me. That's it for this week. Next week, we see what happens to Joseph. Uh, what happens to Joseph next? He will go and meet Pharaoh and he will become the second most powerful man in Egypt. All a part of God fulfilling his great purposes that are already at work and what we saw today. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray that just as Steve mentioned and just as we've talked about, Lord, there, there would be profound gratefulness among your people for the many blessings we receive, even through difficulty. You are a good God. You are a God abounding in loving kindness and truth. And we experience that. But Lord, sin has a way of choking out all that gratefulness. And like, like Adam and Eve, we can have a garden full of fruit trees and resent that we can't have that one tree. Lord God, I pray that we would see the folly of that, we would see the ingratitude of that, that we would see the sin of that and turn away from it. And that when things happen to us that we don't understand, even injustice and suffering, that we would trust you and say, I don't need to know exactly what God is doing because I know he's doing something good because he's that kind of God. You are that kind of God to us, God. You are so gracious to us. Forgive us for our sins and our ingratitude and our lack of trust and help us instead, God, to walk by faith before you because you are worthy of it. And that is the way of wisdom and blessing. I pray that that would be true for the people of Calvary and anyone who listens to this lesson today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you're most welcome. I'll see you again soon.